The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, The Spectator celebrates its 10,000th edition, so I speak to two people in the know about what the magazine's history has been. But before that, we discuss the political decision of exiting the lockdown, as well as what coronavirus has done to African countries. First up, James Forsyth writes in this week's magazine about the political dimension of the coronavirus crisis in Britain. He joins me on the podcast now, together with Craig Oliver, Director of Communications under David Cameron. So James, can you tell us about what the dynamics are like in Cabinet at the moment when it comes to the question of lockdown? So I think what one of the things that this crisis has done is it has exacerbated the division between the kind of what you might call the inner Cabinet, those who are in on these detailed conversations about how to deal with coronavirus and the kind of outer cabinet who are just really seeing how it affects their department but aren't really involved in the detailed policy making. You speak to people about last week's cabinet meeting and this will come as no surprise to Craig but the the real decision had been taken before the cabinet met and I think one of the things you see in the outer cabinet is mounting concern about the economic and societal costs of the lockdown I think you know one cabinet minister estimates that about two-thirds of the cabinet overall would like to see a significant easing of the lockdown at the next review but I don't think that's where Boris Johnson is I think we're looking at a fairly mild lifting of restrictions because there is this incredibly difficult question, a delicate question, really, which is this, which is the R, so e.g. the number of people that any person with coronavirus infects is currently below one. If you can keep that below one or below, then the NHS can manage the virus. But if that creeps up to even 1.2, then it could end up overwhelming the NHS, even with the additional capacity the NHS now has. And so the kind of question is, what can you ease off that doesn't risk the R going above one? And I mean, that is that is the question that the top of government is wrestling with right now. And Craig, obviously, cabinet ministers have been left to wrestle with this so far, largely by themselves. What do we know about where Boris is leaning in this discussion? Well, look, I think we can only, what we hear through people, whispers and gossip and that kind of thing, my understanding, having talked to a number of people who are in number 10 and another number of people who are in the cabinet, is they feel that he genuinely did have a life-threatening experience and the impact of that is to make him realise the full force of the health worries that are behind COVID-19 and a sense that we cannot mess around in terms of exposing huge tracts of the population to this. There is a view, I think, in, in in Downing Street that next week he's quite likely to be back at work. They're not 100% sure yet, but they're hoping he'll be back. And they're hoping that when he comes back that there will be a lot more definition to what is going on and a lot more clarity. But James, I think, is absolutely right. The idea that somehow in the next couple of weeks we're going to be told that there's been massive loosening of the restrictions is very unlikely. One cabinet minister put it to me that we might see some bookshops and garden centres opened under social distancing rules, but the reality is these restrictions are largely going to be with us until we find a vaccine. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's probably next year. And he just went, yep. (laughs) 
And James, I suppose that is the point, isn't it? That the lasting solutions to coronavirus are not just around the corner. And so we're going to have to learn to live with it. Can you talk a little bit about what the lasting solutions are? So there are only three, right? So the first of them is herd immunity, which isn't some socially Darwinistic view, but it's it's essentially a pooling of resources. Once the people responsible for 60% of social interactions have had the virus and have immunity, the virus ends up having nowhere to go and peters out. The problem is we are, as a country, we are absolutely nowhere near that. Government sources say that epidemiologists think that the percentage of people with resistance in the country as a whole is very low, low single digits. And even in London, where the outbreak has been most severe, it's only in very low double digits. So in other words, you know, we are nowhere near herd immunity. So you can take that one off the table. Then the second option is a vaccine. Research at Oxford University have talked about having a vaccine by September. I think a lot of people in government think that's a very ambitious timetable. One of the most interesting things I've learned in the last few days is that scientists have been trying to find a vaccine for coronaviruses in general for, for years now with very little success. And also, even if you had that vaccine by September, you would then have to have, you, you then need to produce sufficient doses to immunise the population and have to have a national immunisation programme. The third option is essentially a cure. It's finding something that means that the disease doesn't kill people. There's a very interesting piece in the 10,000th issue of The Spectator out today by Matt Ridley, basically saying that he thinks a cure is more likely than a vaccine and looking at some of the possible options. And I think if you look at Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific advisor's comments at a recent press conference, it's quite clear that he too thinks that a cure is more likely. I mean, then to come back to Craig's point, the question is, is it realistic to keep the economy in this kind of medically induced coma until there is either a vaccine or a cure, even if that is next year. I personally really struggle to see how it is when you consider the the social and economic costs of carrying on with with something like this, with, with restrictions of this sort for that amount of time. But Craig, it seems like the public is not in the same place as a lot of journalists and some politicians as well. The public opinion is still overwhelmingly pro a sustained lockdown, isn't it? That's absolutely true. And I think that one of the things that's worrying a lot of people in government, partly because of the way that communication has had to be to protect the NHS, and I think it's been absolutely right to make sure that that's happened, but there's a worry that they can see lots of economic problems coming down the track. There is going to be severe issues with unemployment, people being made redundant. You cannot continue to have a system where people are hardly spending any money at all, and that doesn't really choke off the economy to a massive degree. And they're deeply worried about that. And also worried that do people actually get the extent of that? Do they actually see the impact that that's going to have? So there's a lot of work and energy going in to try and keep the economy on life support, but also I think deep fears that public opinion may, which has been very supportive so far, may become very volatile in the advent of the economic impact really hitting home. And this is a tough question I'm going to ask both of you, but at the end of all this, do you think that we'll be looking at another Conservative victory if it does it right? Or is there a realistic possibility that this is what does it for, let's say, Keir Starmer's Labour Party in getting into Downing Street? 
I think that's a wonderful journalistic question, which is way ahead, <laughs> which is way ahead of itself. I mean, look, I mean, God knows, who knows? The reality is, who would have said in January that in March we would have been in lockdown and that, that would be, we would be looking at a lockdown going on for another year? Volatility, I think, is the watchword. Volatility in terms of events happening to us, volatility in terms of opinion. You can see public opinion shooting up massively in favour of a government, but probably falling away again soon. So look, all I can say is, would I say that it's beyond the bounds of possibility that, that Labour form the next government? No, of course not. Is it also possible that this government is seen to have done its best in extraordinarily difficult circumstances and people vote for them? Of course, the reality is it's way too soon to tell. Okay, James, a slightly different question to you then. What is the role that Labour plays in all of this? This is the week that Keir Starmer takes up the reins properly as leader of the opposition. How does an active opposition change the dynamics here? I think two things have changed the dynamic this week. The first of them is the recall of Parliament. That means there is now much more scrutiny on the government's decisions. And I think that also has another effect. Because the truth is... Tory backbench opinion is even more worried than the outer cabinet are about the economic effects of the lockdown. I have not spoken to a single Tory MP who doesn't want a substantial easing of the lockdown in three weeks' time. They are spending their time on the phone in their constituencies to local businesses saying we are in real trouble. So when Keir Starmer demanded the government set out a kind of clearer exit strategy, the government tried to kind of bat that away and kind of dismiss it as politicking. It's going to be much harder to do that for them now because I think you're going to see that most Tory MPs also want a clearer sense from the government of what the exit strategy from the lockdown is. And I think that... I I was just going to say that I think that that is an extraordinary thing because I suspect the people in government realise that having a formed exit strategy that is clear and precise and will be written on paper and be followed precisely is impossible at this time. And I think that what the, the... the, the comms people in number 10, I think, have actually done a really good job in very, very difficult circumstances with limited information in an environment where you are expected to provide a running commentary constantly. They have done a great job. But I think that, that, that deep inside them is the fear, the truth. We don't know. We don't have the information yet. And I guess what I would encourage them to do more, not just to their backbenchers and to the outer cabinet that James describes, but to the public in general, is look... We don't know yet. And it's okay that we don't know because we can't pretend. We can't make it up. And here is what we are going to do. We're going to try and create as much stability as possible. We're going to try and do this. Does it look like there are going to be substantial changes to the lockdown? Not really. Are we going to be living with this for a very long time? Yes, we are. I think they're doing a great job, but I would encourage them to just be that little bit more frank about the reality of the situation and the lack of knowledge they really have. I think one of the things as well is that the one of the challenges of the government is the margins in this are so fine, right? That if the R rate, the reproduction rate of the virus is one, you're all right. If it's what, even if it's only increases to one point two, that could overwhelm the NHS, even with the added capacity. I think one of the things you're going to see is the government not going first because it wants to watch and see what happens in other European countries which ease their lockdowns, and I think that's going to have a massive influence on which way they go. And I think if you look at other countries, so for example, South Africa at the moment appears to be doing quite well. They were several weeks behind. They were able to watch very closely and be able to get it right. So I think we're in a position where we are behind other countries so we can keep that eye. 
on that. But I think also to be fair to the government, I think we also need to look at what was success considered to be just a few short weeks ago. Success was considered to be that the NHS didn't fall over and that it did dramatically increase its capacity. It has done that with room to spare. It hasn't fallen over. What I think is next is to help people understand how long-term this really, really is and the impact on the economy and to help educate people on the economic impact and consequences to the degree that has happened on the health side. James and Craig, thanks very much. Next... The coronavirus has devastated wealthy Western countries, and it's often hard to look beyond our own headlines. But what is it doing to African countries? In this week's issue, Aidan Hartley looks at this topic, starting first from his home country, Kenya. He joins me down the line now, together with Dr. Amma Feni, a health economics academic based at the University of Ghana. So Aidan, can you tell us about the situation in Africa? Well, I start my story by describing the collapse of the flower market in Alsmere in Holland, which is the main auction house for the world's flower industry. And a few weeks ago, all of the production coming out of Kenya and Ethiopia and other African countries was basically thrown away. And in one day, the industry pretty much collapsed. I think it's running now at about 20% capacity. The results of this have been absolutely catastrophic for employment in Kenya. Many jobs have been lost. Uh, And then on top of that, you've got the hard stop for tourism that employs 67 million people across the continent. You've got uh, the commodity crash. You've got countries like Nigeria and Angola that are uh, technically bankrupt now. And, uh, And many other aspects of the export industries are in crisis. And one of the biggest revenues for Africa is remittances from all of the people who have gone around the world to richer countries to work and send money back to their families. And just to give you one example, it's about $200 million a month remittances are sent back to Kenya. It's down by 80%. On top of that, we've got the problem of food supplies. Africa, 54 countries, only one of them is a net food exporter, that's Zambia. Everywhere else is food distressed. And then finally, you've got the problem of debt. And and this is an amazing catastrophe. You've got hundreds of billions of dollars in debt that are being rescheduled. 157 billion of that is to China. A lot of that debt is off the books. It's cross-collateralized. And China now has an opportunity, if they are in danger of defaulting, of snapping up assets. Now, Zambia is already talking about handing over copper mines. And there's talk of of oil fields and so on. And so Africa is in, in a lot of trouble. Of course, it's getting handouts now already from the IMF and the World Bank. And one wonders whether this is going to repeat some of the mistakes of the past. So, for example, they've given a a billion dollars to Ghana with no conditions attached. And given what we know about corruption in the past, one wonders whether the egregious behaviour of some of the governments is going to be repeated. Emma, you're joining us from Ghana. How does the situation look to you from there? We are currently going through a partial lockdown. Three weeks ago, we went to cities, the biggest cities in Accra, Accra and Kumasi, 
went through a very restrictive lockdown where we had almost all businesses closing down, government institutions closing down, schools. Basically, the whole economy just grounded to a halt. And so we we had issues where people were in very difficult situations where people were hungry, social distancing was a joke in certain areas where we have a lot of overcrowding, homelessness. The government tried to mitigate some of these things by coming up with um, solutions such as food distribution to people who were poor and vulnerable. That exercise in itself through the whole issue about social distancing out of the way because the whole process made it impossible for anyone to actually obey the laws of social distancing. It was chaotic as people were jumping all over the place, trying to grab few bags of food and donations from philanthropists and other other groups. It, it was a very poorly um, organized situation, which, which made no sense to actually social distance in the first place. So given the three weeks of very harsh, you know, existence for many of the poor and vulnerable groups, the government decided this restrictive form of lockdown was not working. It really was not working at all. So the government decided to go back to the partial lockdown, where now businesses have been told they could start, but then they should also obey social distancing in, in that you should have fewer people in your shop at any time. You should provide water and, and soap for people to wash their hands. And then the government is also advising people to wear masks. Again, they cannot enforce that because there's no distribution of masks. You know, So again, we are back to the situation where the government will, will give out a directive, but people will not do it because some people cannot even afford to buy masks. You know, if you have people, a lot of people living on less than $1 a day, that should tell you the kind of suffering that people go through, let alone to ask them to buy masks. You know, so, so we are facing a situation where all these vulnerabilities are out there in the open, especially because of this crisis, you know. And, and, and to, make it, to make it even worse, for children who have been out of school for about five weeks, since this whole lockdown started. If, if you have children who live in homes where they have no access to the internet, even if their schools are offering online courses, they cannot take advantage of those courses because they are not part of that digital world. So you have homes where there's no computer, where some of the kids have never seen a computer before. You know? So we, we are seeing gradually how these social constructs are really becoming visible as this COVID crisis goes on. From a public health perspective, Amma, do you think the lockdown is being lifted too soon? Because the way you talk about it is, seems as if it's livelihoods and the economy that's motivated the government's latest decision. I think there are two ways of looking at this. If, if we don't let people go out and find money to live, we will have more crises on our hands in terms of people dying from other unrelated, you know, factors outside of COVID, you know, so from hunger, from, you know, theft, suicide, domestic violence, you know, other issues that are very unrelated to the health system 
as of now. We, we are not, we, I don't think we have the infrastructure to, to manage that crisis on that level. So it's hand in hand, the economics goes with the, with the health as well. But um, I'd rather that people go out and find money and, and live than get sick from other factors outside of the COVID. I'm hoping that with our very youthful society and almost healthy, you know, young men and women, we may have less of that in, in Ghana. I'm just hoping, it's, it's just a hope, because I don't think our health facilities are ready for the crisis that we see in the West. No, not at all. Aidan, you mentioned the IMF bailout. You also write in your piece that Britain's approach to this is upsetting. What is Britain's approach to this? Well, I think that what you can see is that COVID dominates the headlines across the board. And yet life goes on in Africa and other continents. And it seems that all focus has has now been placed on this one issue to a degree that perhaps is very dangerous for all of the other things that are going on. So, for example, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates across Africa are no doubt taking advantage of this. And there's been a flare-up of conflict in several countries with jihadis who are now concentrated more in the continent than elsewhere in the world. I was very disappointed to see the British Army cut down their staff by half and essentially mothball the mission. And I'm also dismayed by the picture of many thousands of uh, of British people, not holidaymakers, but I think people who have been resident across the world that have been so vital to British policy in the post-Brexit era, who, who now appear to be uh, going back to the home country. And, and we have to see that this is a temporary thing and that life goes on and that we must maintain the links and the relations that we have with the rest of the world. It's not just about donation diplomacy from the West as it is from China to Africa. We've got to think about all of the things that uh, we were doing before this crisis flared up. I just wanted to address what Amma was saying because... What she was describing, I think, to a lot of listeners will be what life is like in Britain and the West, um, the kinds of, of challenges that ordinary people are going through. And I think that the point about Africa is that these things are just so much amplified. And, and it's worth stressing what Amma uh, talked about, the youth of the continent. I mean, in my piece, I talk about how, how young the continent is and the profile of this virus appears not to be that much of a threat to people who are below 60. There are very few Africans above that age. And so one wonders how much of a medical threat this is going to be in a continent where I talk about how in a good year, perhaps up to three and a half million people die of simple communicable diseases like malaria, TB, HIV, etc., and, 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 and really, you know, is it going to be that much of a challenge? We don't know yet what the comorbidity problems of people who are malnourished or who are HIV positive will be. But one senses that Africa, which has dealt with so many challenges, can take the medical challenge 
Most recently, we've had you know Ebola, which seems to be rising again in Africa. But you know the economic crisis is the thing that will really challenge Africa, as I think it will challenge the West. And so I see the sort of story as being quite similar in the West as it is in Africa, except that the economic crisis will just be amplified that much more in Africa. Emma, Aidan finishes his piece on a sort of note of optimism that this moment of crisis might sweep away bad regimes and corrupt politicians. Do you think that's a fair hope? So as this um, COVID crisis has played out, what we have realised, at least from our background as academics, looking at leadership and how different countries have approached this whole situation, how they have reacted. So we've looked at leadership across countries such as Rwanda, where it's more authoritarian. And we've looked at leadership in Nigeria and in Ghana, where we have a lot more democratic you know, tendencies. And then we look at very fragile states and places where there are conflicts. And in, in the same thread, you have... You have all that power in, 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 in a few people who take these decisions. And in countries where it's a bit more democratic, you, you actually see that the government responds to, to the public. So, for example, in Ghana, as the COVID crisis was going on, we realized that the people were agitating, you know, through the media, through the um, radio stations, people were explaining the misery and the pain. We saw that on social media. We saw clips of people, you know, having to even sell in the night in the market so that they could evade some of the barricades from policemen. And, and, you know, so people had different coping mechanisms. But it all came out eventually and the government listened. You know, so, yes, we, we are here. We are hoping and I'm hoping that even though, yes, IMF and the World Bank is bailing out our governments, we are hoping that they will be more careful in the way they use the funds so we don't have debt crisis once this whole COVID issue rolls away. That is my major problem. You know, yes, we have the bailouts, but what happens in the future if these um, funds are not used properly? Mm. Aidan and Amma, thank you very much. And last... No magazine in the world has celebrated its 10,000th edition, but The Spectator is celebrating that this week. To look back on the magazine's long history, I'm joined now by the editor Fraser Nelson, together with David Butterfield, a Cambridge lecturer who is the author of 10,000 Not Out, the history of The Spectator from 1828 to 2020. David, I suppose the beginning is as good a place to start as any. So can you tell us about how The Spectator started? Well, The Spectator is a very old magazine. It's founded in the 1820s when the Duke of Wellington, his Prime Minister, George IV, is on the throne. And it's founded by a man who was born before the French Revolution was even underway. So we're talking about a good couple of centuries of history. But it didn't come from nowhere. It came from a Scottish journalist of rather humble origins who'd spent 15 years or so working his way up from printer to editor up in Dundee and working through various journals before each time falling out with the owners when he ended up reporting in a way and on topics that didn't align with their owners. So come the 1820s, 
when this chap, Robert Rintoul, has moved down to London. He's already got a keen set of backers who are equally interested in reforming the way the UK works. And they have deep pockets, he does not. And on the basis of their, their funds in 1828, he sets up The Spectator. But it also had a precursor, didn't it, Fraser? Yes. I suppose the prototype was the Addison and Steele Spectator, which lasted for just over a year in 1711. But that was reprinted. So those 500 individual essays were reprinted in eight-volume sets, and they ended up in pretty much every educated household in Britain and America. So when Rintoul set up The Spectator, it would have been a nod to this iconic brand, but also a formula which um, The Spectator in its current form preserved. So you'd have articles about um, books, arts, poetry, music... A reverence for the classics. You would sort of eschew partisanship at a time where a lot of publications were really big, big Tory or big Whig or whatever. The Spectator didn't regard itself as, as any of that. And so you ended up with a weekly magazine that had a lot in common with the original Anderson and Steele. But the interesting thing is that when you read what um, Oriental imagined for The Spectator, I was actually reading it when I wrote the leading article of this 10,000th issue. The format, in the, in the, when, he, when he's describing, when he's advertising what he wants this new weekly spectator to be, he pretty much describes the magazine, Cindy, that we work on right now. It's something that starts with the news of the week, which looks at the politics of the day thoroughly, which takes a lot of time looking at books and ideas, which has miscellaneous articles about science and culture, which rejects as false the choice between entertaining and informative. So the basic format of The Spectator has hardly changed over 192 years. There are lots of titles which can say that they had predecessors that were 100, 150 years old, but I don't think any magazine has stayed so essentially the same in nature. And when I became editor, I worked out that I wasn't in charge of this magazine personally, not really. The magazine has got its own formula, its own magic, and that the guide to our future lay in our history. And that's why I've been so grateful to have David Butterfield so um, ardent a fan and so brilliant a guide to what The Spectator has been and how it navigated the dramatic moments of the last two centuries. David, I suppose as well as the breadth of our content, there's also one other thing that you write in your book that links the current spectator and throughout all of its years, which is an air of freedom, which is how Charles Moore described how he felt the first time he read a spectator. How do you think that devotion to freedom has manifested itself over the years? That's right. There's no question at all that when Rintoul sets about setting up the new spectator in 1828, freedom is the key watchword of how he views the world and how he views journalism. He's adamant that the press should be free and that freedom of speech should be preserved in its pages. But he's also obsessed with the idea that individuals deserve their own freedom and should not be subsumed under the state. As a result, it continually campaigns for freedom of voting and freedom of trade, which are principles that have been held up by the spectator for the last two centuries. And what's interesting about that is, despite those principles not changing, the political allegiance of the, of the magazine continually rotates. So it starts as an anti-Tory newspaper for the reason that the government of the day is not 
bringing through the reforms that are necessary to allow the country to operate more freely. But when, 20 years down the line, the Tory Prime Minister Robert Peel repeals the Corn Laws, then the spectator is, is happy to move towards a more Peelite view of the world until 30 or 40 years down the line, the Prime Minister Gladstone, the liberal hero of the magazine, decides that home rule is the way to go and thereby endangers the union. And that is one of the other major uh, obsessions of the spectator, a faith in the nation state and in its past. So it parts company with Gladstone and again 30 years down the line when free trade becomes the issue of the day and the liberal unionists are proposing protectionism. The paper again has to abandon its temporary political allegiance and it rolls on and on and on into the 20th century. So at times it supports almost a Labour position. So there's a period in the 1970s when the spectator's main ally is the Morning Star in opposing membership of the European market. So that's a rather long-winded way of saying that commitment to certain principles of individual freedom and political freedom have meant that it's free of any political allegiance to a given party. And Fraser, that commitment to freedom also translates to the way that the magazine itself is run. And we're often known of us for willingness to push boundaries. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think The Spectator has always stood for a variety of opinion. People like reading well-written arguments with which they might disagree. So you wouldn't want to pick up a magazine that was entirely pro-Brexit, entirely anti-Brexit, entirely pro-Tory, entirely pro-Labour. You want to mix. Our readers aren't tribal. They hate tribalism. They've always hated tribalism. And they expect to find columnists who vehemently disagree with each other, columnists who'd be disagreeing and slagging off the editor. It is, as Alexander Chancellor beautifully put it, more of a cocktail party than a political party. And I think that the spectator fundamentally, it doesn't stand for any... Okay, it stands for liberty. We, by and large, believe that countries are best when governments trust the public. And that's been true and everything from um, taxation to our approach to the lockdown. to We basically think that, um, that, that we are on the side of liberty, on the side of reform. Uh, Rimpetul set up the magazine to campaign for the 1832 Reform Act, pretty much, and he did. Uh, we were one of the few publications to advocate the decriminalisation of homosexuality at a time where we were slagged off. And in David Butterfield's book, he reveals that we were attacked as the bugger's bugle for our particular campaign there. Uh, we've always tended to be isolated in the issues that we campaign for, actually, whether it was supporting the North against the slave-owning South in the American Civil War, or whether it was um, backing Margaret Thatcher in the first ballot, which no other publication did. So now and again, we do take issues and we campaign on them, but that's only the editorial. Inside the magazine, you'll get people who completely disagree with the magazine's editorial line. They disagree with each other, and that's how our readers like it. I'm glad you mentioned cocktail party there, Fraser. David, you you write about an industrial drink culture, historically that is, in your book about The Spectator, and sometimes that's got us into the news as well. Um, David, can you talk a little bit about this industrial drink culture? Yes, that's right. Uh, Certainly in its post-war form, The Spectator has had a very close relationship with, uh, with alcohol and certainly with the pubs across the road, be it the Duke of York, the Marlborough Arms, and now the two chairmen, the, these pubs are well frequented by staff 
past and present. Um, but not of course, currently. not currently as it may be. No, we, we were the last people in the two chairman, actually, Cindy, you weren't in that day. But um, just after lockdown, we wanted to go and um, have a farewell drink there when it was borderline legal. Don't let Matt Hancock hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yes, but pr prior to then, the magazine, of course, maintained a much more Victorian feel in its view of alcohol. And there's a period at the turn of the 20th century when the Spectator is regarded as the sort of newspaper that lies on the table of every vicarage in the country. But after World War II, certainly there's a, a string of editors who are much more carefree in their attitude, both to rapidly changing popular culture and to the actual act of editing. I mean, we've mentioned Alexander Chancellor already, but several of his predecessors, be it the MP Ian MacLeod, be it Ian Gilmore, who went on to become an MP, or Walter Taplin, the man who in the 1950s really moved the spectator into being a magazine, they all knew how to have a good time. And looking at the magazines they put together, you can see on the page that a lot of the interaction between the writers can only come from their social interaction. And there are all these tales of legendary lunches going on at the various premises of the spectator. And for many editors, that was the breeding ground for finding new stories and new features. And finally, Fraser, we were going to celebrate the 10,000th issue this week with a party with our readers and writers, but obviously circumstances change and we're sitting in our respective homes recording this on Zoom instead. So this question will be hard, but what do you think the next 10 years of The Spectator will look like? I'm actually pretty optimistic uh, about the next 10 years. The industry in general is not looking great right now. But mind you, if you look at the last decade, the decade we've just come through, the magazine market fell by half over that decade. The Spectator went up by 40%. And I think that the, the digital era, strangely, has introduced a whole bunch of people to the printed magazine who would not, not otherwise have seen it, they might not have picked it up in the news agents, but they do take out a trial subscription, they might listen to a podcast like this, they might visit the website, and then they acquire a habit they never really thought they'd get into. And so far, I have to say that every single year looks better than the last in terms of prospects for the magazine. We have got the greatest gift, I think, that any publication could ask for, and that is a readership, an incredibly loyal, enthusiastic readership who sustain us with their thoughts and ideas, with their emails, they show up to our events. Every now and again, we, um, we have a party for the readers in the back garden, and they always are exactly how you like to imagine them, people who I've got incredibly varied interests. You get um, priests, scaffolders, former prostitutes, all sorts of people reading The Spectator. And they are a real cross-section from British society. And Rintoul's original idea in 1828 was that if you come up with a magazine that's good enough, then people will come to it. You don't have to worry about the financing. You shouldn't follow any rigid, pre-ordained financial strategy here. If you put faith in the power of the written word, if you have enough variety and imagination amongst your contributors, then people will come to you. And, and I read in David's book, he was actually quite worried at one stage, writing to a friend that The Spectator was simply too eccentric, too expensive to be contained by any ordinary sales. But we have then been blessed by extraordinary readership. And it's to those readers that we owe our success today. 
And what I've seen from the last 10 years as editor, the readers that I've met, give me complete faith that they're going to stay with us in greater numbers. And I like to think that we may have just published our 10,000th issue. We may be the only magazine in the world to have done so, but we're just getting started. David and Fraser, thank you very much. And David's book is out on Amazon now, so you can find out more about The Spectator's history if you'd like to. Thanks for listening, and you can read all the pieces discussed on the podcast this week when you pick up an issue of the special edition. In it, you'll also find a diary from Ian McEwan, Matt Ridgely on the contenders in the COVID cure race, as well as a short story by Elif Shafak. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week.